We wish to acknowledge the traditional caretakers of the land we record this podcast on, the Yuggera people and their continued connection to the land and waterways of Yuggera country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Hi, I'm Libby Trickett. This is All That Glitters, a podcast where I sit down with the world's best retired athletes and explore the transition from the bright lights of competition to the real world. Today I sit down with NBA championship winner Andrew Bogut. The rookie out of Ames, Iowa. Two-handed slam and a stare at Fareed. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's such a, a pleasure to have you on. It's like, yeah, it's a it's a real privilege. So thank you for making the time. No worries. Thanks for having me. I guess where I kind of wanted to start our chat was how did you know that basketball was a thing that, one, you were good at, or two, when did you work out that you really loved the sport as well? Um, well, good question. So uh, I guess early on in my childhood, I did a bunch of different sports. I mean, growing up in Melbourne, I did um, Australian rules football, obviously, was one of the first things. Actually, gymnastics was the first thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Maybe, that maybe got too tall too quickly. Um, no, I just, I just hated it. <laughs> um, my sister was five years older, so she did gymnastics. So I'm talking when I was four, five, six, seven. My parents thought, well, we'll just drive him to one spot instead of two. We'll just chuck him in gymnastics and could not stand it. Besides the trampoline, the tramp was fun. Other than that, hated it. I was really kind of um, mesmerized by ball sports. So like, you know, whether it be footy, cricket, basketball, tennis, whatever. Did Australian football for a little bit, like the, what it was called, Vic kick, all the clinic stuff. Did some Taekwondo and some fighting. And then um, I guess around seven, eight, I really started to watch a lot of basketball on TV and played a lot in the backyard and at my dad's workshop. Um, he was a mechanic. And then um, asked my parents, like, I want to play basketball. And they were like, well, like we can't keep changing sports. It costs money, mm. equipment. He's like, if you pick basketball, this is it. Like, there's no more going back to this sport or that sport. You better be 100% certain. And I was like, yeah, I am. And that's kind of how it started. So I joined my first organized team at, I think I was nine or 10 years old. And the rest was kind of history. I, I you know, I never knew I was going to be a pro at that point. I, I loved the game, but yeah, it was just a matter of kind of excelling each year um, as I got closer towards becoming, you know, high school and college. I think that's the, the kind of interesting thing for Australians wanting to do a sport like basketball because the the big professional league is not in Australia. Obviously, the NBA is kind of like the benchmark for basketball. Was it kind of daunting, the idea that you might have to like move countries to to continue and to grow into the athlete to make it in the U.S.? Yeah, not really, because as a kid, you you don't you don't think that far ahead, right? Like I, I just love the game, and that's all I cared about. I didn't think about like uh, I didn't think I was gonna be a pro at nine, ten years old. Like it was like, oh, this would be great if someone paid me money to play basketball. And I guess for me, it was I was never a follower, I never have been. Mm. So yeah, like all the, all the friends were playing AFL. Like you kind of some kids just play because they felt left out. Where I didn't really care. I was like, no, I love this. So I'm just going to do this. Like no one follows me. Don't care. Still yeah. going to play basketball. And it was a little bit harder as far as 
um, facilities and all that back then, like just just trying to get into a leisure center or a facility to work on your game one on one was damn near impossible when I was a kid um, because they would they would rent it out to badminton and volleyball and this and that and you know you talk to the people at the front desk and be like hey can I come in tomorrow and work out at nine yeah no worries and you get there oh sorry we, someone paid three hundred dollars to rent it out for the next four hours and you're like <laughs> you know what I mean so. That was hard, but yeah, as far as like um, feeling the pressure of going into a sport that was harder to get to the top level in Australia because the league wasn't as great, you had to go overseas, didn't even give it a thought. And mm. that probably wasn't a realisation as well. I was probably 14, 15, 16, to be honest with you. That, I mean, that's so interesting because, you know, in Australia, obviously swimming, there's bloody there's pools bloody everywhere. And particularly in Queensland, it's really easy to access great programs and great coaches and things like that. I hadn't even thought of the fact that basketball, you just didn't have access to facilities or coaches as easily. Yeah, the coaching was there, but more an organised structure. So you could only do this time. It's more for guys or girls that wanted to put the extra extra training and extra time in. Um, we have the facilities in Australia. It's just getting access to them is a pain, you know, um, just really, really hard. And I remember like at, at 14, 15, once I actually had a, a personal trainer that was working me out. Like we, we had to move, you know, to different stadiums, almost James Bondish at times to just try and get a court. Like, cause like I said, you, you rock up, you, you train there four days a week and everything was fine. And the fifth day you get there and last minute they booked it out. Right. And they're always going to take money from a group booking rather than us paying. I think it was like $5 per person per hour or something. Right. So that's what made it really, really hard. I mean, I had a hoop at the back of my house, which was a small little, paved area i'd go to local outdoor high schools as much as i could to, to just train there on the weekends by myself when i was younger but as far as proper training on a proper court it was definitely it was roulette at times where you just sometimes you you know sometimes i liked it to be honest because <laughs> when i you know 15 or 16 my, my, my trainer was crazy he was he was full on like the, the sessions were brutal like hard really hard and some days you know after a long day at school you're super tired it's hot it's summer whatever He'd pick me up from school every day. He'd be waiting in the car park and drive me home. I'd get changed. We'd go to the whatever facility we could get to. I'd be like thinking in my head, oh, I hope so. I hope that some badminton players have rocked up. Like and fingers crossed. <laughs> and and that has that happened sometimes. And you know what this guy did? He goes, Cool, okay. We're driving to a local oval and we do conditioning. I'm just like, this is even worse. <laughs> so he figured out very, very quickly. I think the first couple of times he was pissed and just drove me home and all right, we'll see you tomorrow. But then after a while, he got smart and was like, no, nah, there's still work we can do. We, I'm not just going to drop you home. So that's kind of what you what you went through. That's amazing. Was there a moment in um, your kind of teenage years where you went, oh, maybe I could, maybe I could make the NBA. Like maybe, maybe this is a thing. No, no. Um, I tell people this all the time. The NBA for me was like a, a unicorn, um, I, I, you know, it, it exi- does it exist doesn't it coming from australia who knows um that dream that pathway it was like yeah i take the opportunity but i didn't think it was realistic i thought for me getting to the nbl i think maybe europe would be the max potential reach uh, this is when i'm 12 uh, 12 13 14 and and there was no pathway to the nba back then it's not like it is now i mean these these kids are, are very very lucky and a lot of us that played in the nba have kind of you know, accelerated this pathway we have now to actually knowing how you can get there doing this or get there doing that. 
back then, the only guy really that stuck in the NBA was Luke Longley. Um, mm. He had a 10-year career with the Bulls. There were a few guys that had stopovers but never really panned out long term. It was more like a year or two here, a year or two there. So the odds weren't in my favour, you know, and that was over the last 30 years. So, yeah, the NBL, for me, it was like if someone's going to give me money to play basketball, I'll go to Estonia if I have to, like, yeah. since it's a dream come true. Like, it just was bonkers when I'd see, you know, my father working in a, in a workshop, um, breaking himself, working with fuel, working with poisonous things, you know, working on cars and, and getting paid, whereas I'm like, someone will pay me to do this. Like, it just didn't make sense as a kid. So, mm. yeah, the NBA thing for me, the realisation of that came on really, really late, really, really late in my teenage years. So I, I didn't think it was achievable during kind of my mid, mid-teens. I mean, I, I love that because it, it really shows that you had that passion and that drive without the lure of potentially millions of dollars at the at the NBA level, obviously. So when when was it that you kind of went, okay, I'm going to kind of go all in here and go over to the US? Because you, you ended up playing college basketball first, right? Yeah, so I went to the AS first. I got a scholarship there 2002-2003. So I kind of knew at that point, look, I'm going to be a professional regardless. Um, still wasn't thinking NBA. You know, I'm still in Australia, like, and got a scholarship at the University of Utah, Went over there and then I started popping up on NBA draft boards, like late second round, like so that's basically top 60, somewhere in there. So, oh, this is kind of achievable. Like, don't screw it up. And, um, getting, <laughs> don't yeah, stuff up here. <laughs> yeah, I was getting, um, after my second year at the AAS, before I went to my first year of college, I went to the World Junior Championships. Won a, we won a gold medal. It was the first one ever for Australia in the 19 level. I played really well, won the MVP. And then I was supposed to go to college. Um, for those not familiar, you don't get paid in college. You, you basically get your books and board for free and, and the rest you got to fend for yourself kind of. And it's changed a little bit now. But when I was there, it was brutal. Like I had to get a job and all this kind of stuff. But um, go to those world championships. And I was right after I was getting million-dollar offers to go to Europe um, wow. for a bunch of European teams. And it was it was tempting. Like it was like, you know, kid that hasn't come from a lot of money, Family hasn't come from a lot of money. We had good years and bad years. Um, Dad is in a business. And all of a sudden, like Panathinaikos and CSKA Moscow and these teams are offering a million euro. You're like, wow. Like as as an 18-year-old, it's pretty daunting. But I was kind of, I've always been a man of my word. I I shook hands and signed a letter and said, no, I'm coming to the University of Utah. So my mindset was with college, it's not a binding contract. Um, If you hate it after a month, you can leave. Mm. So you know, try this and yeah, went over there. And, and then that probably that basically from that world championships within two years, I was in the NBA. So wow. it, it happened just so quickly. So before my 21st birthday, I wasn't even legally allowed to drink in the U S I was playing in the NBA. Right. Um, and so yeah, from the 18 to 20 mark was just, that was my massive growth jump start to saying, okay, I can like get to the NBA now and, and, and stretch out a good career. So like, I don't know, a huge amount of basketball. I'll be very upfront and honest. But I was reading about how you were the number one draft pick in 2005. Yep. That seems like it's an important thing. <laughs> what did that feel like? Pretty crazy. Um, you know, it, it, first Australian ever to do it. Mm. It was not something that I thought was going to happen. Um like I said, I went to college my first year. I played decent, played pretty well. 
And I was, like I said, pre my first year in college, I was late first, late second round pick on all the draft boards that they do all these, you know, analysts kind of do all these, all these boards that they kind of, oh, he's going to go this pick. And it was all kind of late, late second. By the end of my first year in college, I was like, oh, this kid, like probably early second round, maybe late first, which is late first round is 30 picks. Then I went to the Olympics between my freshman year and my sophomore year, my first year and my second year in college. I went to the Olympics, made Olympic team, um, went to Athens as a 19-year-old and played really well against men, played against Team USA. Everyone's like, who the hell is this kid? Where did he come from? Mm. Played really well. And then I went back for my second year in college and we changed coaches the new coach, Ray Jack Lee, that we had kind of let me do my thing. He's like, oh, we're going to play through you. We're going to go as far as you take us. And I had so much confidence going from that off-season of playing against grown men that I felt like, I mean, it sounds arrogant, but I felt like I'm going back to play against boys again because mm. I'm going back to college, right? I've just played against Tim Duncan and, and LeBron James and all these guys, and now I'm going back to playing against kids my age or younger. Mm. I just felt like I was above that and I'm ready to dominate it. And then... So that second second season in, in college, with each month I was going, I, I was getting higher and higher on the draft board. So after the first month, it was like, oh, he's in the twenties. Second month, always oh, in the late teens. Wow. Uh, way to like March, it was like going, he's top ten now. No, now he's top five or he's top three. Um, so I got to the point where we were top three. Uh, finished finished school, went to the Sweet Sixteen, had a great year at the University of Utah, and then the lottery was in, I think it was May. Uh, Milwaukee got one, Atlanta got two. My agent said, generally an NBA draft, you're going, the lottery will be announced, so top 10 teams, top 20 teams, whatever whatever picks they have, and guys will go and work out for different teams if you don't know where you're going to go yet. Mm. He said, we're only working out for the top two. So I kind of knew that at that point, serious, I got a chance to go number one. Ended up ended up getting called first, which was, um, yeah, pretty cool, just considering, you know, my journey and, the bumps in the road that I had throughout my junior career to get to that point was was pretty satisfying. And so then you've, you've been picked number one, you know, you're part of an NBA team. What does it feel like when you run on for your very first game? Do you remember that moment? I do. Well, there's a lot of in-betweens as well. That's the thing in the NBA. You got Summer League first. So I um, went to Summer League, was, did okay, was, was inconsistent. Um, you know, you got a tie on your back as the number one pick. So everyone was going after me, um, but did, did okay summer league wise. And then my first game was a, a preseason game was in Minnesota. And I remember just, you know, like basically thanking the lucky stars, thanking God essentially. Like yeah. I'm finally here, like playing as Kevin Garnett at Minnesota. Can't believe it's finally here. Took a deep breath, took it in and, and played. And you don't really have much more time than that to think in the NBA because it's just so full on. Like the schedules, the schedules. It's, it's really insane, like four games a week on average with travel, um, and that's cross-country travel, you know, getting the hotels at 2, 3 a.m. I, I didn't realise the extent of the travel and the brutalness of late nights. And, like, for instance, we'll, you know, we play tonight in L.A. Uh, we check out of our hotel before we go to the game. Trucks come and pick up all our stuff. We get on a bus, go to the arena, play the game, go straight from the locker room after the game onto the bus, straight to the airport, onto a plane, fly to Portland, get there at 2, 3 a.m. and then have a game that same night, right? So um, you kind of, you just like autopilot for a lot of it and um, they call it the rookie wall and I probably hit that about December, January where you're like, well, this is still got another half of the season. I mean, that sounds 
oh, I mean, because it, uh, it's interesting from the outside looking in. You just see, you know, these big time players. You see yourself, you, you know, you see diamonds and all <laughs> like it. it <laughs> I don't know why diamonds came to mind for me, but, you know, it's quite a... I mean, it's a, it's a huge industry and it's a huge draw card for, for so many people around the world and you have this vibe of just like luxury and like, I don't know what the word is, but like it's just this interesting dynamic between, you know, these amazing athletes and then like the rest of the world and to know that it was just so brutal for you guys <laughs> in terms of like travel and training and, and competing, like that, it must, must have been exhausting. Yeah, it is. And look, no one's going to feel sorry for us. Uh, let's just put that out there right now. We, you know, we um, we have a lot of money and a lot of perks. And like you said, it's it's kind of we are rock stars, especially if you're on a good team. Like I happen to be with the Warriors, it's, it's insane um, when you're a really good team. But that's a part of it. People 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 think um, that it's, it's very very easy. We do stay in five star hotels. We have chartered planes, which which help a lot. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that you're, you're getting into cities at three four in the morning. You know, diet can be tough at times because you're eating on a plane a lot of the time. You know, all those kind of small things. Um, but like I said, no one's gonna, no one's gonna feel sorry for you. It's just you just gotta figure it out and navigate it along the way. I mean, the the chartered planes I get though, because you guys are all like seven foot tall, and I can't imagine you being I mean, squished yeah, into I mean, cattle like class. Back in the day, like credit to them. Like, like, some, like I think back in the day, it was trains, buses, and chart and uh, commercial flights. And wow. Um, with 82 games right like it's oh. it'd be almost very very hard to do these days um with, with travel being as, as as busy as it is one delayed commercial flight and you're missing a game and the nba does not like canceling games i know this for a fact because we're, we're flown through like we flew through a um a cyclone one well basically there was a cyclone warning in memphis <laughs> the arena got locked down no one was in the arena we still played the game oh and they still made they still had us fly out after that cyclone passed, like, you know, and the NBA does not like cancelling games. I know that for a fact. But, um, yeah, it is, it's, it's just – it's full-on. Family life can struggle because of it. Uh, there's a lot of positives and there's also a lot of negatives, mainly away from, from the court that you see with a lot of a lot of players. I mean, divorce rates, 80-plus percent in the NBA. Wow. I think the, the percentage is very similar for people – you know, gone bankrupt or losing their wealth within five years of retirement is about about around around about eighty. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of wow. things that you know, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's full on. Like it's it's often it's been spoken about. There's been a, the, the ESPN series broke kind of covered it decently, but I think it can be done much better. But there's a yeah, there's a lot of people. It's just kind of quiet because people don't like talking about failure, mm. so you don't hear a lot about it. But there's a lot of guys that within five years have, have if not bankrupt, they've lost most of their net worth and they've, they've got a nine to five, which is kind of crazy when you consider people look at, well, how can that happen if you've earned 30, 40, 50 million? Mm. I can tell you very easily, um, very, very easily when, when you factor in all the all the family, friends, perks, luxuries, all that kind of stuff, and they lose that support system once they retire. They don't they no longer have an agent, no longer have a financial advisor, and they just end up, end up losing it pretty quickly, which is kind of sad. That is fascinating, isn't it? Because, like, you imagine earning that much in your contracts and, you know, I think it's like, I mean, you said 30, 40, 50 million. That's like per year, isn't it, for some players? 
Oh, that's the high end. Right now, it's gone crazy the last five years, so max players are earning that. But, I mean, like an average player will earn probably 20, 30 over yeah. the course of career. Um, superstars are earning, you know, there's some players that will eventually hit the billion-dollar mark in contracts as mm. we move forward in the future. But on average, you know, 20, 30 million is probably the number. Yeah, Still and, and the, but yeah. this is the interesting thing is that, you know, and it, 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 for me, obviously, talking about this on, on a podcast that talks about that transition from being an athlete into real life, like if you don't get that support in how to manage that amount of money when, you know, you're still probably very young when you're coming out of your sport, like that's understandable why people because you get used to a certain type of luxury a certain type of living as well and then as you said everyone would be expecting that you might be paying for everything and so very quickly that money can just disappear oh it's worse than that in the nba like in australia you don't see it as much like you probably see the extent of it here is you've got to cover your your dinner with your mates you expect mm. to cover it that's probably the extreme of it in the nba and the nfl and there's big contracts it's You've probably got family and friends on a salary. You've got your best friend. You're paying him a couple hundred thousand to just be your best friend and hang out with you full time to play video games, all that kind of stuff. I've seen that. That's, crazy. Like that's, that's very, very consistent throughout the NBA. There's an uncle who wanted you to open, invest in a restaurant that he has. And then there's a nightclub that you're invested in. And I've just, you know, generally the saddest thing is it's family. Mm. Or anything. There's business interests that, you know, you learn from those. You invest in something stupid once or twice. You're not going to do it again. It's the family that that really, you know, decapitate, take the legs out of players, I've noticed, because there's that guilt of, like, especially a lot of guys in the NBA have come from, from rough areas and nothing, yeah. and their parents have kind of helped them drive them around as a kid, and they use that as guilt to continue to you keep paying me. I need a bigger house. I need a bigger car. And, and then players retire. And all of a sudden, you're not getting that four, five, six million a year anymore to sustain paying someone a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm. Like I said, that only lasts three or four years. And that magic number is five years when they're in some trouble. And it's it's pretty simple math when you look at it like that. And um, it comes to a point where if they say, okay, I'm not paying, like, hey, mum, dad, I can't pay you this, or brother, sister, auntie, uncle, I can't, <laughs> I'm not making that money. Mm. And it caused division and, and all that kind of hits the wall. So, you know, you see that way more. When you're in it, it's just not spoken about because it's taboo and, and guys are embarrassed about it. You yeah. know, not my, own, my own family wouldn't do that. It's like, well, it, it, for most guys, it is like that. And oh, those that's... tough conversations have to happen eventually. Yeah, that's so hard. Oh, man. Well, for, for you, because, you know, uh, there's were a number of moments within your career that was, you know, you had some pretty serious injuries. I mean, I remember, when was it, like 20, 2010 when you broke your wrist? Yeah, my wrist, my elbow, my arm, basically everything on the right side of my body, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, the footage of that was just, whew, I mean, hectic. And then you broke your leg and you've had, you know, a, a thousand and one injuries in between. Like, how do, how do you manage, for one, rehab, recovery, trying to get yourself back to that highest level when you are travelling around the world away from, I assume, most of your, you know, support network like your your partner or your family and things like that yeah it's pretty hard um as far as that goes you know we, we have obviously really good people in the nba and professional sports for the most part that can help you get the best advice and the best rehab programs and um the injury stuff something you can't i was never hurt before i got to the nba college high school never never missed much 
through injury um, and then had a really good first couple of years in the NBA and then had a middle period just sucked and then towards the end got better again. It's about learning about your body, figuring things out along the way, but injury stuff's hard. Like it's no matter what anyone tells you, you can't prepare for that because not only do you have to rehab, you generally feel isolated from the team Mm. because you're doing your stuff away from the team a lot of the times. Um, A lot of times if you've got a a long-term injury, you won't really travel. Um, You'll stay in the city and just there's no point getting on a flight and swelling and all that kind of stuff. Um, So that's a hard part, but it's, I mean, the way I treated injuries was I would try to always beat the timeline that I was given because that's the only goal. Because you're an athlete. (laughs) Yeah, but it's, it's, it just gives you something to, you know, all right, the doctor said six months, like, screw you, I'm, I'm, I'm doing five months. I love um, that. And sometimes to my detriment, like the arm, I came back. I came back from the arm way too soon. Like, I was an idiot. Like, I came back. I did it in, was it uh, March? And I was, I was back on the court in September. And, I like, basically my elbow was facing me, broke my elbow, broke my wrist on both sides, um, broke a few of my fingers, and I was back on the court without – like I had my flexion extension in my elbow was so bad. Like it was, I couldn't get it straight. I couldn't get it straight and I couldn't do a bicep curl either way. Came back on the court to my shooting hand. So now I'm struggling to make a shot because it's just all over the place. I had a floater in there. I didn't know that I played a whole second season with, with a floating bone in there that would just move around. I was complaining about uh, pain when I was shooting to the trainer that every now and then I get this massive stabbing pain and I'd shoot an air ball because it would be like just throw my shot off so much and got to a point where they're like, oh, yeah, man, harden up, you're fine. Like, And I'm like, no, something's wrong with my elbow. So I played through it the whole season. Then when it had a scope and they took out this massive chunk of bone in a small joint space like an elbow. Wow. So that affected my game mentally. It affected me being probably less aggressive at times because my shot wasn't as good. So I'm trying to navigate that. And that's that's just a part of being a professional athlete. You got to kind of adapt, and I try to then find ways of affecting the game. I knew my offensive game wasn't at its peak anymore, just because I lost a lot of touch, and I didn't know if I'd ever get that back. And I, I didn't get it back to to where it was pre. Um, but it's like I can't can't continue to make that excuse or let it hinder my career. I now need to find things, different things I can do to help the team. And for me, that became at the defensive end. For me, um, I really tweaked my game and had some really good coaches that helped me understand that I can affect the game in different ways and became elite at that area of the game. And um, it ended up helping me once I got to Golden State. Something that I'm really fascinated by with elite athletes is that, I, I don't know what it is. Like, is it an innate desire? Is it something that we've learned through our sport? But that constant drive to improve. And even if something is, as you said, not where it was, at the start of your career, how, how do you then shift your mind to go, okay, I can't do that, but I actually can develop this area of my game and that still allows me to compete and get better and, and be one of the best in the world? Um, it's, hard. it's hard. I think the first thing is you got to be honest with yourself, um, which, you know, for me was like I went from Milwaukee, um, number one, number two option, the whole time I was there, maybe number three when I was a rookie, but then became the go-to, if not the second go-to guy, right? So then I get to Golden State and I'm playing with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, a few other guys I know, and it's like, you're now five, six, seven on that totem pole. And that sucked to hear, mm. but then you're like, I'm not going to, you know, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson are potential, you know, Steph is a Hall of Famer, Clay Thompson potentially a Hall of Famer. 
it makes sense when you when you think about it away from the emotional side of being not I would say selfish, but thinking about yourself, you're like it makes sense. Like mm. so let me let me facilitate my role so they can look even better. And that was kind of how I adapted. But it's not an easy conversation to have with yourself, mm. uh, especially when you're the number one, number two person. So that's where a lot of pro athletes struggle. And I struggled with it for a little bit. It's a matter of how long you're going to struggle with it. You're going to let it affect you for two, three, four, five years and be out of the league. For me, it was a month, two months, and then, all right, I've got to, I've got to figure this out and and navigate. Otherwise, I'm going to be out of the league. Like, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm not Milwaukee, Andrew Bogut, where I'm getting 20, 30 touches a night and I can play through my mistakes. And now I get five touches a night mm-hmm. and the rest i got to facilitate for teammates and, and be a role player and... A hard pull to swallow for a lot, but you got to you got to eventually be honest with yourself. Is kind of the punchline with that. And you were kind of just not happy to be there because that sounds like really condescending. But you know, you, you obviously have gratitude that you're still getting to play the game that you love. Yeah, that and just being on a great team. Like, look, in Milwaukee, we weren't a team that was a powerhouse. Like, we had good years and bad years, but not a lot of success, especially playoff wise. Went to a couple of playoffs, and that was it. Whereas now, like, I'm a pretty important cog on a massive wheel that has a chance to be, we ended up winning a championship mm. and the following season breaking the NBA record for games won in a season. So you're part of history there. So and understanding that comes with time. you got to understand that, you know, look, I could be playing in a different city and averaging 15, 20 points a night, but we're never going to sniff the playoffs. Or I could be on a very good team and averaging eight, nine points, but an important piece of, of winning. But, you know, there's other things like, you know, back in, it's changed a little bit, but points, rebounds, assists, uh, they correlate to millions of dollars. So, mm. you know, you go from eight points to 15 points, you're doubling your salary. So there's that individual selfishness that, you know, rears its ugly head in professional sports for that very reason. So I've been on, on teams where teammates are competing for stats um, and that sucks because it's just, it's not pure basketball, like guys guys fighting for rebounds against each other because they know if I, if I average 10 rebounds a night, I'm getting paid X. If it goes down to six, I'm getting paid Y. And, and that's that's the brutalness of professional sports. And, you know, we all, put, we all put our hands in and say, let's win, one, two, three, win. And you're like, you know, there's like five guys that don't want to win. They want to make sure that, you know, they're going into a free agency year, they need to inflate their numbers and get paid by someone. So you've got all that as well. And towards the end of my career, I, I always had decent contracts. So I wasn't too you know, stressed out by that. And I've just got to happy to feel my role. But that's so interesting, isn't it? Like the, that team dynamic behind the scenes that you kind of go, you wouldn't even as the average person watching, you wouldn't even think would kind of play into the goal. You just assume everyone's working towards this kind of NBA championship. Do you feel like that was the difference between some of the teams that you played for and, you know, obviously the, the golden state where, where you guys won, was it just about winning and not about, competing against each other was that a different dynamic there there's still competition within each other but it's just a matter of like training you're still going at each other and athletes are competitive like it's yeah you see it you see it in the nba and it it translates off off the court like you'll see a star player will buy a ferrari the other star player will be like oh i'm gonna one up and get a lambo like (laughs) i'm serious i'm not joking like you go to an nba parking lot and there's a competition in the the car park about luxury cars and then it goes to houses it goes to sorry to say this it goes to women Mm. it goes to that the psyche of the athlete is competitive and goes down to the small diota right so it's just it's just 
it's an interesting bubble to be in and you just got to kind of, you know, you can tell which teams have that chemistry and which don't. We, um, they were a basket case for a franchise before I got there. Uh, first year when I got there, still kind of edgy, got a new ownership group, um, reestablished things and just signed good people. Like we got Andre Iguodala in free agency who ended up accepting, he was an all-star, ended up accepting an off-the-bench role our championship. Yeah, you know, myself coming from Milwaukee, what I just said, uh, number one, number two, number three option, accepting a five, six, you know, option role. Uh, we had Harrison Barnes, who was a first round top, you know, high high draft pick who accepted a role. So we had a bunch of guys that understood like, yeah, I can, I can show more than this individually, but the team needs me to do this. So mm-hmm. there's that pool of like, this is for the benefit of the team. And Golden State was gen- genuinely the best team I've been on as far as understanding that in professional sports. Mm-hmm. And it's not perfect. It's still going to be, you know, there is some selfishness that creeps in sometimes even in those teams. That's perfect human nature but there's usually three or four maybe five nba teams a year that have that the rest don't um the rest are just playing for they're playing for oh, if we get to a playoffs that's great that's that's we've met the bar but there's there's genuine four or five teams that actually like each other and can put aside some of that individuality to try and win a championship and mm. the rest is not there so what did it feel like to win the nba championship what was that like to be a part of Oh, yeah, interesting. Um, like it just, it happens so quickly, but when you when you relive it, like we we had so many bumps in the road along the way and ups and downs and we just had a, we had a rookie head coach at the time. We won it and it all just, it all just, we got rolling. It was a, it was a snowball effect once, once we, once we really understood our roles and what we needed to do to win, the win just kept getting on the board and, and, and we ended up going on a championship and winning it and, you know, to be part of a select group of 15 guys a year mm. um, that win championship is pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Um, a lot of times teams will go back to back or like for Golden State, for instance, they've won four out of seven years. The Bulls won um, six of the 10 championships in the 90s. So it's not even that, that, that meant, it's like it's a different team every season, right? So there's a select group that have a championship ring to be part of that and understand understand from a cultural point of view what it takes um, was, was really, really cool. So what happens then when you feel like it's kind of your natural ending towards the sport? Like I know you had kind of quite an interesting last few years in basketball. So you kind of – you went to NBL, you signed with the Sydney Kings, but then you also went back to the NBA for a little bit. Can you tell yeah. me a bit about that, that experience and the decisions around that? Oh, it's a long story. It's not traditional. So I end up getting traded from Golden State to make room for Kevin Durant in the salary cap, uh, which is totally understandable. Like people are like, oh, you mad? You got traded? I'm like, it's for Kevin Durant. Like, <laughs> like I, I get it. Trade, <laughs> I would trade myself. Um, <laughs> so end up going to Dallas. Don't do well in Dallas. Uh, just had a in the process. My wife was pregnant, having a child. So there was that stress of adapting to all that as well mm. off the court. Was in a city that I wasn't familiar with, no real support network, no family, no friends. End up getting bought out slash traded up. I knew that was going to happen for All Star break. Um, I don't report to Philly because they they weren't good at the time. So my agent's like, look, we're just going to wait for after the trade deadline, and and, and probably put you with a, a team that's going to the NBA playoffs. Um, they'll have a team will be looking for a better and big man. So 
what we're going to do is, you, you know, you're just going to hold off. Oh, sorry, actually, I'm incorrect. I went to Cleveland after that, mm. broke my leg, flew back to Australia. Uh, <laughs> just sorry. missed that part. You know, um, <laughs> broke my leg. My so I was like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, sorry, <laughs> went to Cleveland, broke my leg in the first game. I just had a newborn baby at the time. We're in a hotel. I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to leave or travel. They didn't want me on my feet because I, I did it. Thankfully, it was a clean break, so I didn't need surgery. But they're like, you cannot, don't even try to stay off even the crutches besides going to the bathroom. We don't want any impact. So it does become a, a an actual crack instead of a clean break. So they're like, you need to just stay off your feet for three to four weeks. So I've got a newborn in a hotel room in Cleveland, snowing outside, freezing cold, don't know the city. And I was on my back for three to four weeks wow. in a bed. And you figure out there's only so much TV you can watch yes. on a daily basis. Yep. Um, I had my wife, I'm not a video game. I had my wife go and buy a PlayStation. I, had, I was doing all kinds of stuff. Like I need something. And then on top of that, our newborn wasn't sleeping. So cool. <laughs> seems seems fine. <laughs> yeah, went through all that. And then it was like, I need to get out of here for my mental health. I need to get to Australia as soon as I can. So I'm telling the doctors, what is the first day I can travel? They go, look. We don't want you traveling before three to four weeks because of blood clot risk. I'm like, I need to get out on the first day. Of, no, I will let you travel on, I think it was the start of the third week, so much so that I have to take blood thinners on the plane with me and inject myself just as a precaution so I don't get I don't get um, a blood clot. Get back to Australia, rehab that, all goes well with the rehab. The Lakers then sign me. I go to, I go to LA. On a non-guaranteed contract, which they told me that look, if you're healthy, we just want a non-guarantee just in case you're not right. I was, I was healthy at the time. They end up waiving me in January, right before the waiving deadline. We had a bad record. Um, we're going to make the playoffs. Their mindset was like, we don't need a veteran big man. We'd rather develop our young guys. Cool, fair enough. They, they kind of lied to me, but I was like, whatever. So um, they end up waiving me. That was January. My agents like, okay, trade trade deadline is. Mid-Feb, once that all falls down, no teams are going to pick you up now and take up a roster spot because they might make trades. So they're going to keep roster spots open. And then after the trade deadline, there'll be a few playoff teams. Uh, we had we had four or five that were interested. We're, we're definitely going to – we want him after we know what's going to happen in the trade deadline. Maybe just like just stay in LA, work out, stay in shape, do all that, and then we'll put you somewhere around March. So cool, do all that. And then – I think it was early February, my grandfather passed away in Australia. And I was like, oh, I'd sent my wife and child back to Australia already because I was living in a hotel room. I'm like, I'm not going to keep him in LA. You just go back to Australia and we'll figure it out. Um, so I was in LA for about three or four weeks working out by myself. And that was hard because, you know, you're around a child, whatever. And then I'm like, I go back for a funeral. So I go back to Australia. Uh, it's, it's summer, it's, it, was, it was just coming out of summer, so it was nice weather, but go to my grandfather's funeral and do all that. And then I'm like thinking to myself, like, am I really going to fly back to the US now with a newborn for two or three months? Mm. Have to find a new apartment, a new house, all that kind of stuff with a new new baby. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to so call my agent and I say, look, man, I'm not going to come back. Um, I'm just going to stay in Australia for now. And my body's been banged up the last couple of years. And then so I was like, okay, maybe I should keep the tires on the NBL. So um, I did. I was like, look, the NBL season starts in September. It gives me a good six-month break to refresh and don't have to rush back to the NBA. I kind of shut the door on that. I was content with not going back. 
and then yeah, that, that's kind of how the NBL thing happened. I, I approached some people in the NBL and um, we ended up doing a deal with Sydney Kings for two years, and yeah, it all just it all worked out well because it gave my body time to recover. NBL is one game a week, maybe two, much more time at home, which was kind of part of my my mental plan was being around the family more with a newborn and actually being around my child. Um, my wife then was pregnant with our second. Um, so we're going to have the second in Australia and I just knew I needed a bit more kind of just a bit more steady lifestyle mm. uh, in the NBA. And yeah, then played played that first year, had a great year, won MVP in the NBA, um, took, you know, the Sydney Kings were sellers dwellers for the last four, basically five years, weren't, weren't, successful um ended up going to the top four making the semi-finals so real changing culture there and then golden state uh reached out to me actually mid nbl season they tried to get me to leave mid nbl season in december to come over and and i was like look um i gave my word to sydney kings i want to finish this right let's let's chat post this season whenever we're finished and as soon as we got we lost in the semis. They contacted and said, we still want you to come over. Let's do it. And then I went over there for a year and then played another year in the NBL and, and that was it. It kind of, for me, sounds so much like right at the beginning where you're like, I don't really care what everybody else is doing. Because <laughs> most people would be like, no, NBA is the thing. Like NBL, screw NBL. I'm not going to do that. Like NBA is the thing until I die, basically. And you've just kind of... You, it's like you really looked at your life, you really looked at your family and what you wanted and then just went and did that. Essentially, and look, I had a horror run mentally the last 18 months with the injuries and, you know, going to Cleveland, breaking my leg. Dallas run wasn't great and then LA. And it was just so living out of a suitcase those last two years as well that, that kind of really I was like, I need some normality. Like I need, I need, you know, just a, a regular every day. I know I'm going to be here. And that was the NBL. I was well, the NBL was perfect. We travel on weekends generally. You're not traveling a lot. You're home a lot. Monday to Friday, you're, you're in your city training in the mornings and you're home at night. Like, so it just made total sense. And I kind of wanted, my plan was always to have kids early thirties. Um, Cause I didn't want to raise children while I was in the NBA. Um, I don't think it's a healthy environment to raise children, in my opinion. I mm. just think there's a lot of um, poisonous things in in that. It's not just NBA. It's probably that rock star lifestyle, Hollywood mm. type of thing. I just didn't want to raise kids in that and time it almost perfectly, um, as hard as it was with the ovulation. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that whole caper. Um, yeah. Like, well, like, is this ever going to happen? Like, what's going on? Um, and then, yeah, so then... Ended up, ended up timing it well to a point where I was like, I'm going to probably retire mid-30s. And if our kids are four to five years old at that point, starting school, we need to be back in Australia. Mm. And we're based. And it yeah, worked out a year later than we planned, but it worked out almost perfectly to – I didn't want to have – you know, the thing in the NBA is like kind of kids in school when you get traded tomorrow, right? Mm. You're like, what do you do to put the kids out of school and go to the next city? Which a lot of guys don't do. They keep them in their city and then they move to the other city by themselves. You, you know, see oh what, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I didn't want to do that. And that's kind of always had my own path. It wasn't what other people told me to do. So when you decided in 2020 that that was it for you, what was that 
process like? Was it just like, uh, yeah, this is, I'm 100% done or was your body just, uh, that's enough? Yeah, so 1920, so like I went from Kings in 1819 straight to the NBA, straight back to the World Championships in China, straight back to an NBL season. I knew that it was going to be a crazy schedule and I wouldn't have a lot of rest. And that was all a plan to get to the 2003 Olympics. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go as hard as I can these next 18 months, two years, with the cherry being 2020 and then retiring post that, right? Like the perfect send-off. So everything was going well, body was holding up. Yeah. And, and then, then we all yeah. know what happened. <laughs> yeah. But then 1920 NBL season, I was starting to struggle. My back was really causing issues. So much so that like I couldn't couldn't even go to the park and push my kids on the swing sometimes because oh. I was like, my back's messed up. Like I need a rest for the game coming up, right? And still played most of the games, didn't really miss a whole lot of games, wasn't training a lot because I just kept getting back spasms and what whatnot. So get to that point. Um COVID hits in March. Our season ends abruptly. Uh, we were a grand final series. Gets we we call it. We don't want to travel back to Perth for game four. We're down to one anyway. They they awarded to them by default, but we that's when the peak really happened. And so then um I'm like, oh man, like cool, I'll just I'll go go for a bit of a holiday, get some sun. And then I was planning on just starting to work out in about May for our training camp, which would be June, July in Vegas, then going on to Japan. Perfect. And then I'll I'll shut it down after that. And then all that COVID stuff happened. So I'm like, oh God, what's going to happen? This, that. Mm. They announced, okay, we're going to postpone 21. I'm like, I'm not getting there. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I don't have another year uh, mentally um, to, you know, not be able to go to the park with my kids. I could I could have got through it. I could have just taken a, sh- you know, a shitload of, or boatload. I don't know if I can swear. But yeah, no, go, go for it. I swear all the time. Boatload, <laughs> you know, boatload anti-inflammatories that next season. Um, to get to 21, but I was like, nah, not doing that. And, and my mindset was, there's another year professionally, then make me need a hip replacement at 45 instead of 50. Because there's that that conversation you get out of yourself, an athlete is like an extra three years can be an extra 20 year toll on your body that speeds things up when you get older, right? You got to think about that stuff as well. Like, will I be able to play with my kids at 50? And I just couldn't do it. I just, you know, as much as I wanted to get to that Olympics, you know, my teammates were on me like, don't, 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 just figure it out, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I can't. I don't have another year mentally to – and I need to play somewhere for that year mm. in shape. And um, I called it. And I think it was as much as it hurts, you know, not going and then obviously getting the FOMO when they won bronze in the mm. first medal Australian men's basketball, it was the right decision just because – I wouldn't have handled the all the um, people that know my views on COVID. I wouldn't have handled. I would have got. Kicked, I, I believe I would have got kicked off or sent home because I, <laughs> I, I mean, all the like the testing of healthy people, it just still doesn't make sense to me today. And I wouldn't have. I wouldn't cope well with being prodded every day for testing and mm. wearing a mask to go to the dining hall and you know all that stuff. I just wouldn't have coped very very well with it. Um, so I think it was the right decision based on all that. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it, it, it speaks to someone who knows what they need <laughs> and what, yeah. what is right for you personally. And that's, you know, something to that all of us can learn something from for sure. So what's life like now? You know, what, what, what do you do with your time? You know, how did you find the next thing that you're going to be working on after basketball? It's been a little bit hard, to be honest, um, just because... 
I was in a holding pattern for so long because of COVID. Like I couldn't couldn't do exactly what I wanted to do because I was either locked down in a state that I couldn't leave a state for months, if not years. I couldn't go overseas. I couldn't do, you know, like with everything going on in Australia, we were kind of the extreme um, when it came to COVID, as we all know. And so I, I ended up launching the podcast a couple of years ago and thought that that could be something that be a passion project and we'll mm. see how it goes. I'm in the process of actually building a studio right now. So amazing. Gonna gonna ramp that up a little bit. Um got kind of a, a decent following of people that, that tune in and kind of got different different facets of what I shows. So like some political stuff, some basketball stuff, Q and A's. And then there's actually a car car one I do as well with a friend of mine. So I try to do a bunch of different stuff. So it's kind of it's kind of funny because there's people that support my basketball stuff that hate my political stuff, and there's people that love my political stuff who don't care about basketball. And so I'm trying to figure all that out. But I've enjoyed doing it and just talking and giving long long form thoughts on things. I think that um, people see you know my social media posts at times and whatnot, and then they try to judge me upon that. But I like podcasts because it's long form. It's, mm. it's very hard to take someone out of context on a podcast, as you would know. Yes, um, you like. I've had media actually grab quotes off a podcast and try to clickbait it. And I'm just like, no, 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 hang on a second. Yeah. Go back and listen to the minute before, a minute after, before, you know what I mean? Like it's so that's why I like podcasts because it's there, it's it's long form. That's been a passion project. And just being around the kids, like I, I get to drop my kids off at school and pick them up. Like it's something that um, my father could never really do. Mm. It's something that a lot of people out there can't do. Um, and as much as it, it, it kind of it can get, very routine boring at times i think it's something that you always got to remember that people don't have that opportunity like the mass population don't have that opportunity so to be able to do that i went to um my kids school on tuesday uh 20 minutes before they finished and did a, they do this thing where parents come in and do games with the kids so you go a board game or whatever and, and just being able to do that right like my my parents couldn't do that because they work nine to five and most parents can't so being able to do that and be around a little bit more probably home too much at the moment to be honest so i need to i definitely need to get out and about and that's why i'm waiting for this studio to finish but mm. as with everything covid floods this that everything's just so delayed in australia yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that. well that's exactly right there i mean there's still there's so much that you know the general population are just dealing with with floods and yeah COVID and all of those sorts of restrictions still um the name of your podcast is Rogue Bogues that's right you got it everyone says Rogues Bogues for some reason no you got it right thank you yes nailed it um we'll have a link to it in our show notes but um I'm going to finish off with two questions if that's okay I, I like to ask athletes you know, there's the big shiny thing that maybe everybody knows about. So maybe the NBA championship or getting uh, first draft pick or whatever it might be. But was there like a quiet moment, you know, you, you're behind the court and you're in the change rooms where you just went, fuck, I'm proud of myself. Um, it's, it's a funny one. It's probably being told twice that I've never played in post, post an injury and getting on from both of them and playing more. Mm. Um, so the other one was one, you never get never going to be yourself again, this, that. It maybe fell off a little bit, but the other one was my ankle. I, I snapped my ankle in 2011-12, right before the London Olympics. I ended up missing that Olympics. And uh, when I had surgery and I believed it was just going to be a routine clean out and I was just going to check the bone and make sure everything was all right and ended up doing a microfracture on the ankle, which whenever you mention that word in basketball, it's it's a death sentence. Mm. And I, I came out of that surgery and um, – 
I was like, you know, what's what's the damage like? What are we doing? And he's, ah, oh, don't know how you're going to recover from this. It might be hard. You know, basically saying like, <laughs> you don't have long left. And it sucked that next two years, like, like awful. Like, no matter what I did, this thing would swell up for like a year, no matter what I did. Like I'd do 10 hours of rehab a day if I had to, it would swell up the next day. And um, ended up, that was in 2011, 12, and still played another 10 years, what, eight, eight and a half years after that. So mm. that's probably the most proud. It's just being told that you're probably not going to play again. If you do, it's not going to be at a high level. Um, and getting through that, I think that's, Almost, almost as proud as the championship ring. I mean, that's remarkable. And the, the final question is, what advice would you give to athletes who are thinking about retirement or preparing for it? Oh, wow. How long do we have? That's a hard <laughs> one. Um, I think finding something you can transition into immediately is very, very important. Um, we as athletes are very regimented and schedule-based. So, you know, for those people listening, it's, it's to a T like it's you have to be selfish as a professional athlete like just put it out there you, you you know whether you're married whether you you know you have to have a level of selfishness what oh, I mean by that 100 percent. eight o'clock breakfast needs to be on the table need to be out of the door by 8 30 need to be at training by nine need to be stretching at 9 30 then post I need my massage at this time I need I need this food pre-game I need this is my nap block and it has to be to a T because it can affect you performance wise and Routines, routine, routine, right? How good were nap blocks? I miss those. When you retire, you wake up and you're like, oh, check the calendar and it's empty. The next day it's empty. And that's cool for about a week or two, maybe three weeks, maybe a month. You can go to, you know, you can go to. Like, oh, this is a novelty. And put your feet in the sand and drink some beers and it's great. And then you're like, holy shit. <laughs> what do I do now? What now? And that's that's the, the hardest thing as an athlete is that. So. Having something you can transition to is very, very important because, you know, life post-sport, thinking you're just going to drink pina coladas on a beach or beers, it's not realistic. You need something to transition to and um, setting that up. And a lot of athletes, I think, should start that process probably in their late 20s, um, depending on when you, when you, I guess, shooting is a bit earlier, but four to five years pre when you think you're going to retire, start that process, start building your network of what your next passion is. It might be journalism. It might be you want to go into mechanical things. You want to go into this. You want to go into that. Start establishing those networks. And the good thing is when you're a professional athlete, whatever your next passion is, those people want to meet you as much as you want to meet them. Mm. So take advantage of that. So take advantage of whether you want to be a journalist. Okay, cool. Go to one of the best journalists in your country or city or even someone that follows your team can I shadow you for a week? Um, can you give me some advice? I'd love to sit with you when you're writing these articles. I'd love to sit with you during interviews, whatever it is, right? And that's just one field um, specifically. I think that's what you got to take advantage of. There's a lot of athletes that retire, then want to do that. Yes. Unfortunately, the way the world works is once you're retired, <laughs> you've forgotten about a lot. It's much harder to get those meetings. When you're at the peak of what you're doing, like I said, I, I network with a lot of people when I played in Golden State. That's that court side because I'm like these guys are obviously millionaires slash billionaires sitting court side in our arena. Let me introduce myself. Let me say hello. And I think that was very, very important to build a network that I have now um, investment-wise and financially. So that would be my, my advice. Four to five years post-retirement, start trying to integrate yourself into what you want to do with me. Such good advice. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. No worries. Thanks for having me.
Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Uh, interesting one. I don't know that I was necessarily prepared to go into the places that Andrew took us in, in today's conversation. It was very interesting. You know, obviously he, as an Australian basketballer into the NBA and what he was able to achieve there was absolutely remarkable. And, you know, something that I hugely admire about him is the way that he was just like, this is what I want to do, so I'm just going to do it. It doesn't matter what my friends might be playing at school or, you know, other interests that other people might have. I I really like basketball and that's what I'm going to go and do. And, you know, similarly when he (laughs) decided to come back to the NBL and then into retirement, it's, you know, he, he really kind of knew what he wanted and wasn't swayed by other people's opinions potentially. Whereas, you know, for someone like me, who's like a massive people pleaser, I was like, wow, that's so amazing <laughs> that you're able to do that. As always, if you have any ideas about other people that you'd like me to interview, head to uh, Instagram at all that glitters pod and I will see you in a couple of weeks.